I just want to go to Graeme Neary, if I can, who's online too, because I followed Graeme on Twitter. And as well as being an expert on the stock markets, he's also an expert in figures, data. Uh, generally doesn't have too much of an opinion, but just gives the facts uh, and normally puts a lot of charts up and everything else. And I wanted to go to uh, the point that Leo Varadkar was making last uh, last night on, on primetime. Graeme, good afternoon to you. Afternoon now. Okay, so Leo Varadkar last night on primetime pointed out clearly that we've had no more excess debts in the winter season this year than we've had in the last five years, which kind of goes against everything the government is doing at the moment. In other words, it kind of, they kind of contradicted themselves in some sense. But I wanted to look generally, you're, you're the expert when it comes to the figures, and we talk about excess debts. In other words, the amount of people who have died per year in this country. I mean, I believe the figure is about 79 people per day on average die in Ireland. Is that, is that an accurate figure? Uh, you're not far off. That's the ballpark, yeah. Okay, so let's look at the last five years. I mean, has 2020 in general been worse than any other year in the last five years? Okay, so the simple answer, Niall, is no. Um, so using the government's own figures, I've done my own uh, estimates and forecasts and stuff, but using the government's figures, uh, we we have maybe 5% more debt from January to September 2020, compared to January to September of 2015. Uh, however, over that time period, the population has actually increased by 6%. So population up 6%, deaths only up 5%. And it gets even So in other words, stuff, realistically, yes. down 1%. Roughly, yes. Yeah. You could okay. think about it that way. Okay. Uh, it gets even more stark when you consider the uh, bulging of the population in the older age groups. So the number of people in this country aged 85 and older is up by 25% compared to 2015. And that's that's a huge change at the very top end for the most senior age group. In other words, and, I suppose that suggests we're living longer generally. We are living longer. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's increased life expectancy. And uh, I, I've gone back to 1980, and I've looked at the trend, <coughs> excuse me, I've looked at the trend of age-standardized death, so a basically a reflection of life expectancy, and how life expectancy has improved dramatically from 1980 until today. Uh, it's all in the figures. Okay, so how long, by the way, what age do we, on average, live to now? 82, is it? It's, yeah, it's your, it's your early to mid-80s, depending on whether you're a man or a woman. Okay, all right. Do men or women live a little bit longer than men, generally? Right, right. Okay. I, so, I don't know what the reason for that is, by the way. I'm sure it's biological, but I, I don't, maybe they look after themselves better, probably, yeah. yeah. Something to do with risk-taking and going to the doctor. And yeah, like I suppose that. working in construction and all those kind of things and risky jobs and all that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah, there's a lot, of, a lot of variables in that. Okay, so Leo last night specifically talked about the winter season. I'm assuming that means September um, through to February the following year. So, so far we can only look at September to December. So, mm-hmm. in, from September to December this year, say, in comparison, we'll take it in comparison to any one of the years in the last five years. I know 2017, 2018 was a particularly bad year because we had a big flu season uh, mm-hmm. or a bad flu season. But generally speaking, in the last five years, is he correct in saying that less people have actually died in the winter season now? Honestly, I don't have a, the number for November uh, or October yet. These are all pre- preliminary figures. You know, even the numbers that I use are preliminary. Uh, it, it takes the CSO a long time to grind through them. But you, if, if you look at the, the monthly deaths in this country for this year, 
you see a clustering in April, and you see that it was milder before April than usual, and it was milder after April than usual. So it's a people call this mortality displacement. So the deaths that we would have expected this year, um, by and large, seem to have been concentrated in April. The total number of deaths for this year is totally normal. In fact, very good, very low. In other words, we have, even though our population is growing, uh, and you pointed out that it is growing 7% since 2015, 6%, yeah, we're, we're having less amount of people who are actually dying. Now, the government will argue, of course, Graham, that the reason for that is, <clears throat> pardon me, is because we're not driving on the streets as much, we're not going to work as much, we're not moving around as much because of lockdowns, and that we're all wearing masks, and we're protecting each other, and that would be a reason uh, for these, uh, this reduction in the excess deaths. Is that a reason? Uh, well, look, that is that is a big question. Now, I have looked up road deaths, road de- um, and the media, mainstream media, has reported on this. Road deaths are actually up this year compared to last year, even though we've less traffic. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, and workplace fatalities are uh, very normal and and very low, so they're they're not a factor. Hmm. And what about, you know, other deaths, say, from the likes of, say, cancer, stroke, heart disease, those kind of things? They're obviously down because obviously excess deaths are down. That wouldn't have been affected by lockdowns or by masks or by anything else. So I, I'm wondering, the deaths that would be primarily affected by masks and lockdowns would be the likes of pneumonia, influenza. By the way, according to the HSE, we have had no cases of influenza this year, which I find very difficult to believe. Yeah, so, look, I don't want to stray into areas that are too far from my own expertise, but um, I will say that uh, in the UK, the ONS estimated uh, many thousands of deaths caused during the lockdown itself by the lockdown, uh, which is people being turfed out of hospitals too early, people in nursing homes not being brought to hospital uh, when they should have been or would have been normally. Mm-hmm. And these factors caused death. The lockdown itself kills. And um, if I translate those UK statistics to Ireland, I find hundreds of deaths potentially caused in Ireland by the lockdown itself. And uh, as far as I know, the Irish government has made no attempt, at least publicly, to say how many deaths were caused in the lockdown Of course, lockdowns can cause deaths by, as you mentioned, elderly people not being moved from care homes into hospitals for fear they might contract COVID where they should be in hospitals. Uh, Although sometimes it wouldn't be ethically to move some, it wouldn't be ethical to move people who are particularly ill uh, with other comorbidities as well as COVID. Uh, And then, of course, the other uh, part of that as well is that people who are suffering mental health, we, we may or we don't, we don't know yet, we may have an increase in suicide rates. Yes. Now, I would, I would suggest that the suicide numbers although extremely tragic and also having a very high impact in terms of life years lost because they tend to be much younger people, um, those numbers are low compared to the total number of deaths in the year. So Mm. I would really put the focus on hospital care, nursing home care. Um, You you can look at the uh, profile of the COVID deaths themselves and you can see how few of those people were put on ventilators. From memory, I think it was about 5% of them were, were you know, in ICU on ventilators. Um, and considering their age and considering how vast percentage of them were nursing home residents, you get a picture 
of people who sadly had a very low life expectancy to begin with. In other words, pe- pe- many, many, what you're saying to me is that many of the people who died of COVID, and I want to be sensitive in how I say this, had reached end of life anyway. In other words, they, they may have had you know serious comorbidities or underlying conditions, or they were at an age where you know we have to accept mortality. I mean, I know it's an uncomfortable debate, but we have to accept that people die. Have we have we lost rationale completely, Graham? In the fact that we're now ex- not expect or not accepting that p- the average person dies at eighty two or eighty three years of age. Have we lost rationale when it comes to that? I, I do believe we have lost sense of proportion now. Um, you know, we're we um, we are accepting massive massive costs uh, across all sectors of society, taking on uh, methods and means of lockdown which we don't really know uh, to what extent they have any impact. And what really bothers me and what's bothered me from the very beginning has been uh, the media. Uh, I'm not singling you out, now, but you know who I'm talking about. The people who say X number of people died, X number of cases, and it's doom and gloom. And they don't tell you how many other people died today of other things. How, how old were those people? They don't tell you. How many people died last year on this day and what age were those people? You know, in January 2018, there were about as many deaths this, uh, in this country as there was in April 2020, right? So January 2018, about the same as April 2020. And that was from a slightly smaller, slightly younger population, uh, meaning that actually from a from a life uh, sort of actuarial point of view, those were actually worse. Uh, that was a worse month mm-hmm. uh, for mortality. And yet the media wasn't blaring it in our faces uh, 24-7 saying, you, you know, X person died, Y person died. But those deaths were just as important as the deaths in April 2020. And when we look at the daily death count, so to speak, and I hate to be very, very morbid on a Friday afternoon, but the daily death count of, of, of in and around between 75 and 80 people per day, by the government's own estimates, somewhere between 1% and 3% of people that they will test, test positive for COVID-19. It would be fair to say that if we have 79 people de- tested every day, and I know they're testing people in hospitals, particularly, um, obviously they're, they're being obviously very concerned because in the UK they've pointed out that one in four cases are actually hospital. In other words, they're people who are catching it in hospital. Um, mm-hmm. So it would be fair to say that out of those 79 people or 80 people that die every day, and if we took one to three percent, you're probably going to have two or three people who will test positive who die every single day. And it doesn't matter what they die from, but they will test positive. Yeah, so what we're looking at now, in my opinion, and I'm just some guy, okay, but my opinion is that that we're looking at a labelling exercise here. Deaths are being labelled, and there's very little investigation by a lot of commentators as to what they really died of, what was their underlying situation. And you can actually do a thought experiment. I've seen people do this, uh, where you imagine a, a completely harmless virus, not COVID, because, you know, we, we can take it as red. COVID is harmful. COVID kills people. But if you take a, a, a completely harmless virus spreading through the population, uh, then some people who test positive for it will die. That's They will die of other, thing, other comorbidities, of course. So, because a certain percentage of people die every day. So you, you, you could have a completely harmless virus, treat it like COVID, and the results 
might not look uh, very different. So, um, in other words, what you're saying is this is coming down to the first time in history we've mass-tested people, well, in our history, in our generation, that we have mass-tested people um, for a particular virus. Yeah, so one, one of the points that I've made in, in this debate to people who are really, really focused on cases, all this PCR stuff, they really, really care about this PCR, this, this positivity rate. What I say to these people is, tell me, what would happen if we applied this PCR method to influenza or some other coronaviruses? Because there's... There are many uh, of them. Oh, there's of them. There's rhinoviruses, uh, loads of different viruses. Apply the PCR method to all these other viruses. And then come back and, and tell me that the sky is falling. Because I bet you that if you apply this PCR method to the other viruses, the results could look pretty similar. We would have people with influenza-related death. Although we do have uh, every year um, kind of somewhere between sort of 400 and 800,000 people, depending on the year you pick, uh, would die from influenza death, which leads to pneumonia, of course, and many people die. If we were to apply the same, I suppose, logic in the way we label, as you call it, uh, to influenza, I'm pretty sure we could probably double or triple those numbers if we called it an influenza-related death. Um, and, and by the way, in relation to PCR testing, just finally before you go, Graham, I know there was a case in Portugal um, in court where where four people had taken a case against the state uh, for quarantining them under because of a PCR test, and that case was lost by the state uh, because they ruled that the PCR test wasn't an ac- accurate enough to quarantine people. Now, I don't know whether they've carried that on or whether there's also another case going on in Germany currently at the moment in relation to PCR testing. I mean, generally speaking, what are your, your feelings on PCR testing? Do you think it's accurate enough for the state to be making decisions publicly in relation to, you know, closing businesses and damaging the economy, etc., based on PCR testing? Well, well, let me preface this by saying I'm not an expert, but I, I tried to listen to the experts. Uh, Dr. Fauci in America is on record as saying that there's a sort of a standard in PCR which says that if you run the test with, a, with what's called a cycle threshold, this is like the, you know, the, the number of times you run the test, if you set this above 35, that the uh, virus can't replicate. In other words that the person is not infectious if they aren't testing positive below a 35 threshold. Um, Carl Hennigan in the UK has said the same thing. He says people who test above 35 are not infectious. Um, the Irish government, uh, you can see Killian de Gascon, who's on, uh, who's on Nepos, saying that they usually run the cycles in Ireland between 35 and 45. And I've seen a FOIA request in Ireland where the response was that in Ireland, we run it between 40 to 45 cycles, which means that uh, if this, these people, if their test is, not, um, is, is negative until they get to 40 or 45, there's a very, very, very low chance that they are infectious. So, you, but you, so are you saying that once you go over a particular amount, more or less everybody's going to test positive anyway, or there will be false positives? Well, they may be a true positive. They may have a tiny fragment of the virus, but their immune system has already destroyed it. And okay, so they may have had, and I know, I know we spoke to, to many professors at the time who said they may have had it six or seven weeks ago or even six months ago and, and, and had a tiny fragment of it, but are still testing positive. Yeah, and you can see it. We, we need to get back to common sense now. People okay. who, have no, who have no symptoms are, uh, should be treated as healthy people. All right, but listen, thank you very much indeed for clarifying all those figures. Thank you very much indeed, Graeme Neary. I appreciate you coming on the air today.